Hello and welcome to a special edition of Mooney Goes Wild from the North Bull Wall here in Dublin. It's cold today, I have to say. Today we bring you a special programme about waders. Ireland is privileged to host internationally important numbers of many wader species over the course of the winter, from black-tailed godwits that breed in Iceland to sanderlings that nest on the tundra of high Arctic Siberia. Some such as the strikingly black and white oyster catcher are easy to identify, while others, such as the diminutive and highly sensitive jacksnipe, can be much harder to get the grips with. Some, such as the Dunlin, are abundant, while others, such as the beleaguered curlew, find themselves on the brink of extinction. In this special programme, the Minigos Wild team will report from key wader watching sites, providing no end of fascinating insights into those oft overlooked world travellers, some of which perform the most astonishing feats of migration. Later we'll be catching up with Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan at Rogerstown Estuary. Jim Wilson is in Cork Harbour and Jenny Brannigan and Neve Fitzpatrick of Birdwatch Ireland are at the Birdwatch Ireland Nature Reserve in Kilcool in County Wicklow. But let's start with the team here this morning. I'm joined by Niall Hatch, Eric Dempsey and Aina Nilana. How are you Aina? I am grand not to bother on me at all. What do you expect only that it's cold? It's the winter, for goodness sake. <laughs> I know, but I didn't expect it to be this cold, and let's you don't be get, honest. You don't get up early enough in the morning, Derek. I'll have you know, Aina, I get up very early in the morning. I'm like Pat Mustard. <laughs> I wouldn't be comparing yourself to him if I were you. Eric, let's turn to you. You love this part of the world, and you love waders. God, yeah, the North Bull Island. I'm a Northsider, Derek. This is where I cut my teeth looking at birds and looking at the, the wonderful world of waders. And I, I remember years ago when I just had binoculars looking out at these blobs out on, on the mud flats. And then 1978, I got a lovely Kawa TSN-1 angled telescope. It was the thing at the time. And I remember putting that on a tripod and suddenly those blobs became godwits and redshanks and golden plovers. And I've been in love with, with waders and wide open spaces like this ever since. And Niall Hatches with us also. Niall, this is a place that's also very dear to my heart, I have to say. We're of course at the heart of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve here, part of Dublin Bay Biosphere Reserve, and it really is the jewel in the crown of that reserve. As Eric was saying, it's astonishing the amount of birds you can see of many different species. I remember as a, a very young birder coming out here, and for a lot of birds I think the experience is the same. You might have been watching birds in your garden, ticking them off your list, getting maybe one or two a day or a week. Then you come out here, if it's your first visit, you get 30, 40 new species from your book just like that. It really is remarkable. Remarkable. Great place. So we're talking about waders this morning. So what is a wader? Well, a wader, it's a sort of a catch-all term given to a group of birds that, strangely, may seem are actually related to gulls. They're in the, the same order, as we would call it there, but they're very different. Generally, they have a similar sort of structure. They tend to be quite long-legged and long-beaked, and that's to enable them to wade, as the name would suggest, out into the shallow waters and to use that long beak to probe into the mud. However, when you get to know them and look at them closely, you'll see that they all have subtly different lengths of beak and of leg to allow them to exploit different niches and to live side by side in an environment like this without coming into direct competition. And by assessing the different lengths of the beaks and the legs, that's one of the key ways to identify the different species. They're very tricky for people to get to grips with to begin with. You look at the pages in the field guide, and I know a lot of beginning birds just to skip past these pages. All these, these brown and grey things with the long beaks, they all look the same. But when you get to know them, they're actually remarkable. And I think we should celebrate them more in Ireland because Ireland really punches above its weight when it comes to these birds. We get huge numbers of them coming to spend the winter with us here at our mudflats and estuaries and our beaches as well. 
when you've suddenly just passed through a migration between maybe Scandinavia and Africa and places like that. But then of course we have a core breeding population of a few species that unfortunately are doing very poorly. So we have waders year-round but our breeding waders are really in difficulty. Our wintering waders are declining but we still have huge numbers of them. Cane fall. Well, there's various different reasons behind that. Uh, climate change has been a big issue, uh, especially for migratory birds. It's affecting the, the way they would breed. We have to remember that we're only seeing part of the life cycle of these birds. And the waders that come to us here in the winter, they generally breed in the Arctic, all around the Northern Hemisphere. Some come from Siberia, some come from Scandinavia, some are coming from Scotland, some from Iceland, some from Northern Canada, possibly even some from Alaska. So we have huge differences in where they're coming from, but we are seeing changes in that Arctic environment, no matter where you're looking. Also, what's happened in Ireland, agricultural intensification has been a big, big problem, particularly for our breeding waders. We're seeing huge changes in our landscape. We're seeing uh, bogs have been being drained. We're seeing lots of traditional agriculture has given way to, to silage and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's just not compatible with, with life for many of these waders. We're also seeing tree plantations in certain areas where there never were trees before, which are allowing predators like foxes and particularly like crows to move in and then prey, scan and then prey on the, on the, ground, the eggs of these birds because they generally nest on the ground. So they're having difficulties there. We also see more and more human pressure. So um, it's interesting to see here at, at the North Bull Island, for example, how humans and birds can coexist in, in relative harmony. I mean, I do see too many dogs running off the leads around the beaches around Dublin and elsewhere. I see too many people walking and, and disturbing these birds. We have to remember it's special protection areas like this. It's actually illegal to disturb the birds in the winter and people don't realise that. So I think we need to be more mindful of the fact that we cause disturbance, then things like climate change, agricultural change, pollution, all of these things are hitting them hard. The waders we have that breed in Ireland are things like curlew, just yes. for people to think that there's no waders, like, I mean, woodcock are waders, for example. Yeah. So do we have other waders that breed in Ireland? We have, we have snipe, of course, that, mm -hmm. that breed in Ireland. Small numbers of golden plovers, small numbers of dunland, small no numbers of, of redshanks. Our breeding wader population has, has shrunk. Of course, along the coast, you get things like ring plovers and oyster catchers. Yeah, we have lapwings breeding now in good numbers down in East Coast Nature Reserve, Birdwatch Ireland's wonderful reserve right on my doorstep. But all of these numbers are in serious decline because of all of the reasons that, that Niall has outlined. And the, the problem is that when you talk to people about curlews, you know, you say, well, you know, the curlew population is really declined. And then they come out to the Bull Island and they see no. three or 400 curlews. They're saying, wow, these guys are just talking nonsense. The curlews we have aren't necessarily Irish curlews. No, they're tweeting in Swedish. That's or the point. Yeah, these are Northern European. Norwegian, these yeah. are Scottish birds. And, and this is the interesting thing about waders because, you know, on a, on a single mudflat you could have birds from Siberia, from Alaska, from Northern Europe all feeding side by side and they can give a false impression that, that waders are doing well whereas right across the, the whole scale of um, species in Europe waders are declining right across the board. I want to ask something that I've always been thinking I mean we see these great flocks of sanderlings or dunlin or something like that now, you're saying they breed in the Arctic. Now, do they breed in a great group altogether? I mean, when I think of our, say, curlew, for example, the only one I am familiar with, they bred in County Louth in the, in the fields before we started making silage. But you wouldn't get a great sheet of them anywhere. There'd be two here and two there and the other. So where do these sanderlings or these great flocks of Dunlin, are they cheek by jowl? Are they spread out? I want to imagine they're summer breeding. Can anyone enlighten me? Well, by and large, Aina, they are very spread out. So the Arctic tundra is a massive place. So these birds will go across huge areas and they become very territorial in the summer, just like our songbirds do here. And in fact, I often think of waders as being in some ways honorary songbirds 
flowers because <laughs> we see them in the winter here and they're, they're peeping and calling around on, on the mud flats. What we don't generally see is the wonderful song flights that some of them do. Some of them Song flights? Song flights. They'll fly up in the air. Some will perch on top of trees and posts and sing. We'll see that a little bit with our red shanks. Occasionally you'll get some black-tailed godwits. And we'll snipe anybody snipe uh, who yeah. has bogs uh, nearby and you hear the, the snipes going wicka, 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 and they give that call followed then by the display flights where the outer tail feathers are stiff and they drop through the air going like a goat yeah Yeah. so that's a display flight of a snipe and that's that's a sound that that we're not hearing as often and the curlew you know the the cry of the curlew and the way sally (laughs) o'brien might look at you that was part and parcel of the sound of a countryside in in summer absolutely and that's that's a sound that most people have never heard nowadays and i think that's really tragic for as a kid that was the sound of the wicklow mountains to me and no longer they don't breathe there yeah, anymore yeah but but you, I was going back to I mean we all yeah. kind of have a hazy remember or some bare knowledge of it but who's up in the Arctic looking at these thousands and thousands of, of sanderlings or dunlin that's the thing I'm trying to imagine have you been there in the summertime for the breeding season I have I have actually I've been up in very the very far north of Sweden and in Norway and parts of northern Russia as well and you do see huge numbers of birds there so I remember once being in northern Siberia and seeing loads of breeding wood sandpipers there are chicks just running across the roads coming into the town had to pick some of them up and take them off a busy road once and that's a bird that you know, wood sandpipers are a rare visitor to Ireland so it was a dream to see these there I'm used to seeing them in the distance through a telescope maybe at the edge of a little pool there they were perched in trees at the side of the road they were standing on the fence post they are standing mm. on the lamppost singing away I was a whole different side to their lives Another thing with those waders too, a lot of them, we, when you look at the field guides here and you see them on the mudflat, I think they're very beautiful birds, but they're subtly beautiful. A lot of them are mostly brown and or grey. Many of them though in the summer they take on bright reds and spangled speckled appearance, which looks really gorgeous, but of course that camouflages them in the Arctic tundra with all heather and all the different berries and flowers that you'd find there. So they're supremely adapted to their lives. Some of them are the, the longest distance migrants, among the longest distance migrants in the world, and they are absolutely phenomenal. I think they deserve a lot more respect. There was a, a recent uh, record set for Bartail Godwood, mm. a bird left Alaska and they had it radio tagged and they were able to follow it and it flew non-stop for over 12 days. Non-stop. Some you amount know, of, of body yeah, reserves. You know, the, the body reserves, that, that, that it was estimated to have lost 65% of its body weight. So it had put on a lot of weight, it shrunk its organs, it had, you know, fat reserves and flew almost non-stop for over 12 days. Now, I often say uh, that if I was ever going to write a diet book, you know, you know, how to, <laughs> how to lose weight, it'd be two pages. Page one, if you want to lose weight, the second page, migrate. Yeah. Because that is how they can lose this weight. So they, they stack on the weight, they take this long distance flight, and then start feeding again as if nothing happened. These birds have done incredible journeys, some of them. Yes, you yeah. know, we, we think of swallows, for example, as being migrants, true migrants. But when you actually think some of the journeys these birds are capable of making. And, you know, Niall is right. When summer plumage comes, they, they just transform into golden and into orange and into reds and into speckled colours. They're just absolutely incredible. And, of course, that is because they're grey out here in the mudflat, so that they're camouflaged against the grey mudflat. But up in the Arctic tundra in summer, all that rich orange, they sit into the tundra. Well, I have to say that I think our ones are very colourful. If you think of the oyster catcher there, it's very easy to identify the beautiful black and white, the orange bill and the orange legs and then the shanks, you know, with the red shank with its red legs and you can see it clearly despite the camouflage Eric. Yeah. Now the other thing I want to ask you is this business of them standing on one leg. Now I mean it says in the books that this is because it keeps them warm but if that were the case 
And maybe it is, and maybe I stand corrected. Why are they not then ever so often putting down that leg and putting up the other leg to keep the other leg warm? And why doesn't the first leg freeze? I don't believe that. Is that true? Come on, convince me. Why are they standing on one leg? It's partially true, yes, it is to conserve heat. And part of it is having that other leg tucked up inside the feathers on their belly to keep that one warm. And they will alternate between their legs. You'll often see the flocks as well all facing the same direction when they're doing that. And that's to minimise their profile against the wind. So they want to have as little wind facing them onto their bodies as possible to conserve as much heat as they can. But birds' legs and the circulatory system is very different to ours. They have very little by way of nerves in their legs. So they don't feel the cold there. But they also have one major blood vessel going down and another one coming back up and as that cold blood from the foot comes back up it's warmed by heat transfer from the other side and it really is interesting just that's how they do it so so the fact is that they actually lose very very little heat through their legs and it's the most efficient way for them to stand but then why would they bother standing on one leg if they lose so little heat why wouldn't they stand on the two legs because you can use lose slightly less by just using the one leg so every little counts and <laughs> you know i'm looking around us today there's ice actually around us it's freezing cold i can see why they do that but of course for these birds this is relatively warm they can survive very cold temperatures provided they have access to unfrozen places where they can find food. That's why in cold weather like this we get reports in Birdwatch Ireland of birds like snipe and oyster catchers, lapwings, even curlews turning up in people's gardens. Woodcocks is another, Woodcock, yes. another species, yeah. 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 Because yeah. it's just that, that few degrees warmer and they're not coming to your bird table, they wouldn't even know what that food was, but they're finding that the lawns are a little bit warmer, they can still probe in and find earthworms and food like that at a time when some of the estuaries become frozen over. Obviously it's tidal as well. It's very rare that we have a condition for pretty much never actually that the sea would freeze here in Ireland. Uh, and parts of Russia I've seen it where the sea does freeze and then the waders, you can see why they would leave those areas, why they wouldn't stay for the winter. We always talk about the birds going south for the winter. We should remember that for millions of birds, Europe, this part of Europe is south for the winter. We get millions of birds coming to us here in Ireland, particularly, and many of those are waders. And as you see Europe getting gripped by colder and colder weather, and this has happened like during those big freezes, 2010, 2011, we had enormously cold weather sweeping across Europe. More and more waders came into Ireland and many of them were sort of very undernourished. They couldn't gain access to food in Europe, they moved into Britain, they moved across Britain, couldn't get food and when they landed here many of them were were dying, literally dying of starvation because they couldn't gain access to food because it was so cold even the mudflats were frozen in Europe at that stage. So when we get really cold weather in Europe we begin to see more and more waders sweeping westward and of course they're hoping that we have the lovely temperate climate and hopefully when they get here they are able to feed. Well let's talk about when is the best time to actually observe waders where we are now and the time of day it is as we record this special programme. This is not live in case you were wondering. It's some two hours or so after high tide and as Aina said to me the other day, well as soon as the tide comes in it's on its way out again. It clicks its heels and off it goes and the mudflats are completely exposed now which is fantastic. All the birds are out there feeding so a great time to see them. And, 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 and we have the sun behind us, yeah, that low perfect. December, yeah. January sun shining across the mudflats, lighting everything up. And I mean, if we'd freeze in fog, we'd hear and see nothing. But now we have both the mudflat expansion yeah. and that lovely low sun, a complete blue sky and a whole collection of European waders for our delectation. <coughs> now, what is that one over there? Well, we have a whole range here right in front of us. And this is the beauty of a place like the Bull Island. They're used to people going, going by, so they're not too bothered. Red shanks, as Derek said, those ones with the red legs. Curlews, the ones with the long down-curved beak, and they're the biggest ones. But I think people get intimidated by the, the, the middle-range ones, mm. the knots, 
Dunlin, we have ring plovers here, there's some golden plovers, some grey plovers, we have black-tailed godwits, some bar-tailed godwits as well, as well as turnstones, and we have turnstones feeding just along well, the rocks. let's start with the turnstone, because it's good to give a list, but it's also important yes. to learn a little bit about each individual. So a turnstone, what is a turnstone, what does it look like, and how does it get its name? Well, it gets its name because it turns over stones, of and if you, if you can imagine as a kid, when you wanted to see creepy crawlies, you flicked over a stone, and there was creepy crawlies there. So a turnstone, it's, it's related to plovers, so it's a small little bird, very cryptically camouflaged. It's browns and white underneath, brown up above, and bright orange legs. But they have a very distinctive beak. It's quite straight, with a little curve at the bottom, slight upturn. Yeah. And what it does is, it uses that upturn... As a lever. Lever. Gets in under stones, under seaweed, flicks it over, and feeds on the uh, insects that are in under under these stones. And you know, it's a very common bird along the coast. In fact, it's a common bird right across the world. I've seen them as far away as Japan to Seychelles, down to, to places like Australia. They're very common right across the world. You see them on the back of Dunleary Pier, and they're just sitting there all in a row, the exact same color yeah. as the seaweed, yeah. and they're the color of their backs, because the tide is out and they're having a rest, and you would not know they were no. there. No, and they're very common. They're very tame as well. Mm. They they don't run away from you. So for that reason, the, the fact that they just sit there, uh, you, you wouldn't even see them. So that's one of those birds that you will see along the coast, particularly rocky shores, seaweedy sort of areas like that. Then we have the ring plovers. They're on the, the beaches and they're on the, on the shore. They have small birds, brown up above, white below, but they have a, a very distinctive black ring around their neck. Golden plovers, similar short beaks, gorgeous golden spangled upper parts and all of these are, are sort of present on all of our estuaries and inland you get thousands of golden plover inland as well so it's not just the coastal birds it's wonderful though when you see them flying in a flock and yes. they're all going one way and then suddenly they turn and wheel and the as you were saying one color above the other below and when they all turn together and the white bellies are all exposed and the sun is shining on them you sometimes i nearly wish i was an artist instead of a scientist <laughs> the thing is just mag and then they turn again and it's all gone it's magnificent it's to see that isn't it and, and the golden plover that Eric mentioned there, that's the prime bird that does that. Others do it as well, but they form these big, it almost looks like a starling murmuration. It's that spectacular. And there's good reason for that too, because when you get big concentrations of wading birds here, you get predators to come to feed on them. So just earlier I was scanning my binoculars and I saw a peregrine falcon sitting on one of the fence posts here. You'll get merlin here as well. They're, they also prey on waders in the winter. So when you have a big flock together like this, it's safety in numbers really. If danger comes, there's more pairs of eyes going to spot it. And of course, that's not going to stop the falcon coming through. But if you're in a big group, it's more likely your neighbour will be eaten rather than you you. The odds are you will survive. But then of course in these big flocks they'll twist and turn. They're, they often have white patches in their wings too that, that flash on and off when they flap. It's to disorientate these predators so it's very hard for that falcon to zoom in or pick one individual bird and hone in on it. So that's really what's going on and that's why they do it. Safety in numbers. I'm looking at an oyster catcher now and it really does stand out amongst all the birds out there. It's quite a large bird relatively speaking but you can see that black and white body and that bright orange bill. Big long orange bill and they probe into the mud with that orange bill and like they're a very striking bird but you'll find those also on the fields around cities that they're becoming quite common on football pitches and it's very interesting that oyster catcher is their name but they don't really eat oysters in Ireland uh, there's a whole range of now different you say they oysters. don't really eat oysters in Ireland. in Ireland does that mean they eat them elsewhere elsewhere really? because yeah our oysters their shells are too thick 
for oyster catchers to break open. You mean those Portuguese gigas you, ones, or do you mean the native Irish ones? The native ones? Irish ones, yeah. they, they simply can't get into them. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, different oyster catchers, the shells are slightly different, the oysters are different species. So our so lot eat mussels. They're mussels and, and all of cockles. And there's two ways for a bird to, to break open a shell, Derek. So you have ones that tap, break the shell get a crack in it and then extract the, the muscle inside mm-hmm. or you have what's called prizers because each shell has a little edge along the you know between the two shells and they'll get their beak in and prize it open to get the, the riches inside and you can tell what an oyster catcher does because if one is using its beak to break it open cracking it it has a blunt tip to the beak whereas beautiful curl you're calling mm. there whereas the oyster catcher that prizes it open has a really fine tip to the beak so you can actually look at an oyster catcher and figure out which way it opens and why would they adapt different methods well they say they say if you're if your parents are smashers you'll be a, a smasher because you, you learn how to do it if your parents are prizers you'll be a prizer so you all have pointy bills and the smashers smashers break, break off the, break tops, off of the, the tops of the bills and now of course yeah. the, the other question is what happens if your mother's a smasher and your father's a prizer <laughs> that sounds like something yeah you know what happens like are you confused young, are these the ones who are out on the football pitches trying to figure out how they're going to get through life you how, know, much, so. how much how much attention do they get from the mammy and the daddy when they're growing up in the first place well they get an awful lot of protection as opposed to anything else so not like other birds in the nest where they get fed most of these young waders are, are almost independent as soon as they crack open the the, um, the egg they're able to walk they're born with feathers so it takes them longer to hatch they're, they're in the egg much longer so they actually are born with feathers and even those feathers are designed for them to camouflage so they're almost independent the, the real uh, way that the adults look after them is by protecting them and showing them the areas in which to feed but they, they feed by themselves it's well, quite talking about feeding. let's talk now about how the curlew that we're hearing there in the background how does it feed with that down curved crescent moon shaped bill that's the perfect description of it Derek yes they use that to probe down into the mudflats and into the sand to find their food and you'll see if you look at a flock of curlews you'll see some subtle differences not all the bills are the same length they're all very long but you'll see on average some have longer bills than the others and those tend to be the females the females are longer billed than the males in that species and that's thought to be an adaptation to allow them to feed side by side during the breeding season in the same territory exploiting different resources and if one uh, sort of food disappears maybe it's slightly too deep or it, it vanishes the other bird of the pair will be able to find enough food and then in the winter they can survive in bigger flocks as a result but they have their bills wired haven't they they do so the bills they might look to us like they'd be very inert but actually they're very very sensitive because when those waders are probing in the ground they can't see what's down below of course so they have lots of nerve endings in the tips of their bills so they can detect even the smallest movements little worms little crustaceans things like that moving under the surface and they're very uh, susceptible and sensitive to that but also they can actually flex the tips of their beaks a bit like the tip of an elephant's trunk or if you imagine our fingertips so they're, they're by no means rigid they can bend them open and closed it's just normally when we see them with their bills out of the ground they have them clamped shut because they don't need to be flexing them so most people aren't aware they do that but their bills are actually going back and forth opening and closing just at the tip all the time when they're under the surface and does the fact that the bill is curved allow them to cover a greater area under the mud than if their bill were straight thinking of physics now and pi r squared and things like that it does it does to a degree obviously when it's in they, they make a series of holes as they do it but also it's thought to be an adaptation that helps them with things like lugworms underneath it's easier for them to detect 
the, the burrow as it goes down and some of those burrows curve as well so that's one of the reasons why they're doing it but alongside them you'll see other birds like the red shank that uh, Derek was talking about earlier it has that sort of a mid-sized bill it's nowhere near as long as a curlew but if you saw it you'd still say that bird has a long bill and they go for some food that's in the, the, the sort of middle of the, the substrate and then beside them you'll have birds like Dunlin one of our smallest little little waders probably about the size of a sparrow but with longer legs and little beak you see them in big flocks here they're like sewing machines they are yeah. yeah yeah absolutely probing up and down all the time they're basically trying to stab as much as they can near the near the surface just you know an inch or two down that's where they find food and have to do that repeatedly and then you have the, the birds like the plovers which have short little beaks and they mainly take food that's right on the surface or just below the surface so that's why you can have a couple of dozen different species of waders side by side uh, all feeding on different material because they're feeding at different depths and if you look at plovers feeding they, they have a, a different way you're talking about like the, the dunlin like a constant sewing machine the beak is going they're not even looking at what they're doing whereas if you see plovers they stop look pick stop walk stop look pick they're not constantly probing like the other birds are they're using their eyes because they're going after food at the very top layer so a lot of their food is found by eyesight and this is the other interesting thing about uh, waders on a place like this their whole lives are, are based on the tides not on day and night so if you come out here at night time and it's low tide you'll have all the curlews and the red shanks still feeding because they're not using their eyes to find food whereas plovers tend not to feed as actively at night because they need to use their eyesight so it's their whole lives are not based on day and night it's whether the, the ebb and flow of this tide and as soon as high tide comes in they will conserve their energy, they will roost, they will sleep on the, the wetlands. And that's the reason why it's Because so they can't get at the food. Yes, they can't get at can, the food. Where the food is, is covered but, by water. Just uh, to explain yes, the food. I want to ask, can none, can none of them swim? I mean, the yes, they can. Yeah, night. they can. Oh, they can Did swim. They... Oh, they can swim. Absolutely, yeah. And why would they be swimming? I mean, they're not feeding well, when they're swimming. It's no, not just no, a life-saving. Just oh, a life-saving, yeah, but you'll often see if a peregrine falcon comes over, they will all go into the water and they'll all stay in the water because a peregrine falcon doesn't want to go in and get waterlogged. So you'll often see them you know in deep water just swimming around so they can swim but i was about to say is that when they go to roost this is the vital part when they can be disturbed because you'll often find them up on a mud flat or you find them up on, on a marshland and then somebody goes along and disturbs them the amount of energy they use up flying away when they're alarmed the amount of energy that they use up is incredible so that is really vital they need to rest and digest that food because that is so important for them to survive the winter. When they're swimming like that, of course, it might be for survival or for, you know, for safety, but the fact is they can't feed when they're doing that. At least most species can't. We do have one remarkable little wader there called a red-necked phalarope. Um, it was extinct as a breeder in Ireland for a long, long time, many decades, and it's returned now in the last few years, small breeding population up in County Mayo on the Mullet Peninsula in, in Borough Charlton's reserves there. And uh, that's a tiny little wader, and what it does is it habitually swims, it has lobed feet like a coos, so like they can actually paddle very well in the water, and they spin spin in a tight circle to create a vortex that is thought to actually bring food up, small little prey mm -hmm. items from the bottom of the, the ponds up to the top and then use the to pick them up. It is incredible. It seems they're very prone to any kind of pollution because they use capillary action to get the food up into their beaks. They have narrow needle-like beaks and they use the rely on the surface tension to bring the food up into their mouths. And it says any kind of pollution, detergent running the water, it breaks the surface tension and stops them taking up the food. One of my favourite things about the you know, they have this, this um, reverse sexual dimorphism, as we call it, where the, where the females are, are the boss and they will... Uh, mate with the males they lay the eggs and then they disappear off you often fly further north have another brood leaving the male behind with the chicks they're beautiful poor old males are left looking after oh, the, the chicks yeah. ah, leaves, <laughs> they spin around in circles they use this capillary action so I remember looking it up what, what, what does phalarope actually mean it must be 
reference this. No, it means it has a white spot. That's what Father <laughs> <Robert> means. <laughs> <laughs> Who then make up these stupid names of ours? People are intimidated about going out to identify waders. You know, go, oh God, where but am I going to start? Birds generally, to be honest yeah, with Yeah, but, but the great thing about waders is they're, they feed side by side. Yes. You know, if you're going out to look for warblers, these little things are dotting around, or if you're looking at other seabirds that are flying big, yeah. past, you know. But I mean, it, you can see the big curve. You can actually go one. out, yeah. you can actually set yourself up, you can say, okay, now let's, let's I understand red shank. Red shank has red legs. So that's bigger than a red shank or smaller than a red shank. What color legs are it? What length beak? You can actually make comparisons. Once you have birds that do that, the identification becomes fairly straightforward. Don't be intimidated thing, by them. The other great thing is that they stay there. I yeah. mean, they're there for ages. I mean, if you go into a wood or something, yeah. you look and you look at the thing in the tree and think it's moving around and it's gone. Yeah. But I mean, these are all there, walking yeah. up and down so like it's, a catwalk. You know, so you can. It's see really them. easy. It actually, you know, once <laughs> it, once you tune into them, they are very, very, very easy. And, and a good pair of binoculars, even a telescope, they make yeah. all the oh, difference, don't they? Yeah. yeah, a telescope just opens up the whole world. I mean, I think that's where I started from. You know, when I got that telescope back in 1978, my whole world changed. That was it. There was no going back. Eric, you're saying for you it was a telescope that brought the birds to life. For Richard, I think it was binoculars, if I'm not mistaken. I've spent a lot of years out and about with Richard, and he's always talking about his binoculars. Anyway, let's go now to the Rogerstown Estuary in North County, Dublin, where Terry Flanagan is with Richard Collins. Richard. Well, as a matter of fact, I was already a seasoned wildlife watcher by the time I got my first binoculars. Binoculars in back in the 1940s and 50s, when I cut my teeth, binoculars were not available to people of my background. They were people who went racing and things like that, and yachting and stuff like that. They could afford binoculars, but we didn't even think of binoculars. Then Japanese binoculars came along, there, and they, they sold for a reasonable sum. They were big, heavy things, you know, but they were very effective, and that was that revolutionised things. But those were the old days. Then came your the big, heavy binoculars, and that really did transform things a bit. You could, uh, and tell me how? What's the one thing that you noticed most with the binoculars? What I noticed most was that I didn't have to rely on my wonderful fieldcraft skills to creep up very close to things. I could then be lazy and see things at a distance. I used to find they, they were big heavy things and they used to tire your, your arms out. That was one of the curious things. Some fellas used to put a belt on and tie the strap of the binoculars onto the belt at the back so it wouldn't be leaning forward on you. But these were the entrepreneurs of the bird world. I didn't do that because I was too lazy. But they were, and then they started out at a 7 by 50 binoculars. Then I moved on to the the 10 by 50 for estuaries. You had to hold that very steadily because all the shake would be magnified as well. But it transformed wildlife watching, those cheap binoculars from Japan. They, They really were. They were marketed in all kinds of trade names, but they were the same old things in all them but anyway I still have them somewhere at home these old antiques you know. Anyway we're digressing we're here in Rogerstown Estuary and we're here to see a particular board today but before we talk about this board tell me a little bit about where we are. The great thing about this place we have great estuaries in North Dublin with Baldoyle, the Bull and Malahide and this one is off the beaten track a bit. Here you're almost back at pristine nature you don't get many people here 
and it's a wonderful place for birds. It really is a marvelous place for birds. It has a lot of different things. It's got the river, it's got salt marshes, it's got a sand dune system out at the other side. It's tidal to the east, of, very tidal anyway, but very tidal to the east of the of the railway bridge. Now it's famous for various things. Of course, you have the, it's internationally famous for the Brent geese, as the Dublin estuaries tend to be. And it used to have, although I believe in recent years, I haven't seen them here for about four years now, the grey lag goose, Patrick Sarsweet's 1691 fleeing the, the, the wild geese, you know, is it for this is that the wild geese spread the grey wing on every tide. Well, that's the grey lag. It's grey goose and it lags behind in migration through and from Iceland. I think that's the origin of the name. But now, we're, one, just, but, we're just yeah. outside yeah. the hide here. Tell me a little bit about the hide. Well, the hide is called after Frank McManus, and he um, he was a great naturalist and birdman, and he died a few years ago, unfortunately, and uh, they call the hide after him. And he was one of the driving forces in the local branch of Birdwatch Ireland. Fishing tribute to Frank, that they call him. And it's a nice... It's up on stilts. Well, let's, let's go in. <clears throat> yep. It's uh, weathered very well in the few years it's here, I must say. And they run it very well. They open it on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, and they manage to make sure that nobody vandalises and that kind of thing. And you must sign the book. Right, well, where's the book? We signed the book there's first. The book. Then. You must sign the book here now. Okay. Absolutely. You have to. Ah, there we the book. Right, yeah. so we're going to sit down. Look out there now, Terry. That's wonderful mud flat and the river flowing down to the middle of it. Good light just now, so you can see lots of things. It's now, the first thing I see out there are teal. Yes, teal, lovely little teal, uh, Europe's smallest duck. It's a great place for teal, great place for widgeon. Uh, and it's a good place for a mallard, of course. You used to get pintail. I don't see them so much nowadays, but it has quite a range. And shell duck, of course. You know, there's about six species of duck caught here now. Well, the shell duck are beautiful. It's such a big bird, too. Beautiful. So colourful. Beautiful, gorgeous bird. There's yeah. a special bird we've come to see here today, and I can actually see it because it's on the far side. It's the little egret. Oh, yes, the little egret. It's, it's, it's kind of out of place, <laughs> isn't it, you know? There's some birds that kind of don't really look right for Ireland. I would think the pheasant, for instance. <laughs> Doesn't the, the part. Pheasant, you know, what's he doing here all dressed up and this kind of thing? You have to be brown and dull. You know, the plain people of Ireland and the plain birds of Ireland, you know. But the pheasants, of course, are an introduction, which is why they're like that. But another one that's a bit like that is the little egret. They're... The first one, I think, was around the 1940s. It's a very adventurous, entrepreneurial bird. It has moved up from Africa into France. It's in the Camargue way back, spread up through France, came to Ireland. I remember the first time I saw one in Ireland, and that's many years ago now. But then in 1996 or thereabouts, 12 of them bred in Yachal. Everybody said... Oh, this bird, the first cold winter, will wipe it out because they're very vulnerable in the cold. But they were wrong. Mm. It's now in every county on the coast and it's now inland in, in Ireland as well in various places. It has been very successful, but it doesn't look right. No, it, it's, it's a, a heron, this gleaming really. white bird. It, it, it's a heron, but yeah. it's a white heron. A pure white thing. You know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the Serengeti or someplace. You know? Now, <laughs> when I look out at, at white birds, the yeah. first thing I think, that's a disadvantage because... 
every now and again we come across albino, say blackbirds and, and indeed, that, and, indeed, yeah. and pheasants, but they don't do well because they stand out. What yeah. about this guy here? Because we can see him so clearly. Yeah. Whereas the heron, he yeah. can blend in. Yeah. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage being all white? There's several advantages of being white. Uh, first of all, you don't have to manufacture pigment. White is the colour of feathers. You don't have to add colour to them to stay white. But that, that, so there's a slight advantage in terms of energy conservation in, in in that. But I think the main reason you're seeing white in the in the egress is that remember it's not you that matters. It's the fish and the invertebrates and the little creepy crawlies that it's feeding on, and they're looking up to the light. So a white object doesn't stand out. It's an interesting thing. Now, they're a heron, and you have the heron, and you have the little egret. And they compete a bit, you would have thought. At least they eat the same things, frogs and tadpoles and creepy crawlies. and Small fish and Small that. fish, anything that comes by. But they have a different hunting method. The heron is an ambush predator. It tends to stay perfectly still. Uh, and a fish looking up or a little frog or a, a creepy crawly and, uh, looking up will not think anything odd about uh, a brown thing or, or a grey thing above. But in the case of the little egret, it's more a pursuit predator. It's a stalker and it's a different strategy. It's moving along, trying to catch things, you see. So, And he has these lovely yellow feet. He's no mm. dress sense. Yeah. Totally black, black legs and yellow feet. Yeah, 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 yeah. The reason I am told, although I find it hard to believe, is that the yellow feet can be used to distract fish and things because they see this bright thing moving below them and they don't spot the danger which is coming from above them. So as he tries to feed, it is an advantage to be white and have these yellow feet to keep the attention off the threat. Here in Rogerstown then, we're yep. looking out, we're looking at the, the, the tide is out, we see lots of birds on the mudflats. Is it a good habitat for little egrets? It's a good habitat for any type of... It's, a, it's not a wader, although it wades. It's a long-legged marsh bird, really, you would say. But it's excellent because as the tide comes in, particularly our seeds, creepy crawlies, little invertebrates in the, in the mud and, and so on, these come to the fore. So it's excellent. They can go along the edges and watch out for things and target them, do you see? It could go uh, into these salt marshes and these these uh, water meadows and things as well. So it's... It's it's a good place, very good, and it's nutrient rich. So there's there's a great profusion of of alga, and then the creatures that live off the alga, the little invertebrates. So for today, all we're seeing here on Rogerstown <laughs> Estuary is the little egret. Yes. But hopefully, in the future, we'll see all the other egrets here too. Anyway, Derek, it's time to hand back to you on the Bull Island. Thank you, Terry and Richard. Let's go now to Birdwatch Ireland's nature reserve in County Wicklow. Kilcool, to be precise, where Jenny Brannigan is standing by with Neve Fitzpatrick to tell us all about iWebs. Jenny. Thank you, Derek. Yes, I'm here today on Kilcool Beach with Nia Fitzgerald, who's the national organiser of the Irish Wetland Bird Survey. And it's beautiful here. It's a huge, big, great expanse. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic location because um, it's got a great mix of habitats. You know, we have the coast, so on the sea you see a lot. You might see some waders feeding, and you see a lot of cormorants and things flying by. And then just in uh, across the railway line, we have um, big expansive fields and kind of mud flats, which is great feeding grounds and roosting grounds. So here today we have curlew and a couple of hooper swans and some grey-like geese and Greenland white-fronted geese. So it offers a great selection of habitats and a great selection of species. Can you tell us now more about the Irish Wetland Bird Survey and what does the data show then regarding declines in the wader population? Yeah, so the Irish Wetland Bird Survey, it's a really important monitoring scheme. Um, it's funded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service and coordinated by the IWEB's office in Birdwatch Ireland. And it's a really uh, amazing survey because a lot of human effort goes into it. There's over 400 volunteers take part every year, in addition to National Parks and Birdwatch Ireland staff. So it's an amazing feat to get all the wetlands across the country um, covered each winter from September through to March. Um, And MPWS funds the survey because we are legally obliged to make sure uh, we know how our wetlands are faring and how the water birds that use those wetlands are doing. Um, and this is important partly because we share them with so many other countries you know, along the East Atlantic Flyway. Every five years or so we do an analysis to see what the numbers are telling us. Um, and our most recent analysis showed that there are huge declines. So in waterbird numbers overall there was a 40% decline since the survey started in 94 or 95. But waders in particular have taken the biggest hit. They've shown the, the largest declines. Um, and we lost 100,000 individual birds during that time and there's been really big declines in some of the much loved species like knot and obviously curlew um, so it's really devastating to see those kind of declines you know and that monitoring is of international importance as well then yes absolutely um as I mentioned, these these water birds they come from the Arctic breeding grounds, but the populations don't just arrive in Ireland. They also go to different countries um, right along the East Atlantic Flyway, so um, right into Europe and down to Africa. And so it's important that we share our part in the responsibility for those populations and that we know we are doing our best to protect those. So if any site here holds 1% or more of the international flyway population, it's considered an internationally important site. And this, you know, it's really important to make sure we do our part in sustaining those populations. If you're confident in identifying waterbirds and own a telescope, we would love to hear from you. That might be a nice project for 2023 if anyone's looking for a resolution. So Birdwatch Ireland are always in need of new bird counters. If you would like to help monitor your local water birds and you have a telescope, please visit rte.ie forward slash Mooney for more details on how you can get involved. Back to you, Derek. Thanks, Jenny. Let's go now to Cork Harbour to Harpers Island Nature Reserve and say hello to Jim Wilson. Yes, Derek, I'm here in Harpers Island wetlands and uh, I'm not alone, I'm with ecologist Tom Gettings and today we're going to talk about widgeon. Before we start though, people might wonder, if you don't know already, where Harpers Island is. We're sandwiched between the N25, which is the main road from Cork down to Middleton uh, and beyond. And on the other side we've got the railway line, the Cork-Middleton railway line. 
And the best way to get to it is if you get to what we now call the Dunkettle Interchange, since all the new roads opened, uh, you head east and you take the exit at Little Island and you, you drive along then the same direction on the old Cork Road and you will come to the entrance on your right just beyond the beautiful village of Glanton. But as I said, we're here today to talk about widgeon. Tom, can you describe for the listeners, uh, what is a widgeon? Uh, widgeon is a, a, a type of dabbling duck, which means it feeds by, well, often feeds by sw- swimming in the water and ducking its head down underneath the water. So it doesn't dive unlike birds like tufted ducks and potchards. It, it, it feeds from the water surface. Um, and it's quite, the male is quite an attractive bird, generally quite greyish bird with a, with a red head and a, a kind of, uh, what do you call it, a yellow stripe on the, or creamy, creamy stripe on, on the front, on its forehead. Um, female, like most ducks, is a, is a more a drabber, browner bird. What, what sort of size are we looking at? Are we talking um, about? So they would be smaller than the mallard. So the people be okay. familiar with mallard ducks. They'd be smaller than the mallard, but bigger than the teal. Oh, so, so they're, they're big enough. They're big, big, big enough. They're, big, yeah. big enough. Yeah. they're winter visitors to Ireland. Yeah. So they, in Cork Harbour, they would occur mainly between October and March. You might get a few in September, um, but you would you would never see them here in summer. Yeah. And at Harpers Island, actually. The numbers would yeah would build up start building up October then from November to February we we would have usually about 100 widgeon present um, and then they'll start to leave leave in March. In Irish it's called a uh, rua, which is the red duck or locka rua, which is the red headed duck. That's a pretty good observation because I don't think we have any other duck uh, like the widgeon that would have that except maybe the goosander which is quite rare or something like that or the smew uh, but listen tom thanks a million for your time and i think anybody that wants to see widgeon get to an estuary during the winter months uh, all around the country they're found in most irish estuaries actually you'll find populations of widgeon and happy bird watching happy bird watching indeed my thanks to jim wilson in Cork to Aineen Ilana, Eric Dempsey, Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan, Niall Hatch, Jenny Brannigan and all the team who worked on this special edition of Mooney Goes Wild. Don't forget you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until tonight at 10pm, right here on RTE Radio 1. Bye! Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney.